It's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. Hi, it's Dana. Thanks so much for listening to the Everything Will Be Okay podcast. I hope we were able to share some great information and perspectives that will help you in your life and your career. But I wanted to let you in on a fun new project we've started. It's called Perino on Politics. It's just me and my friends, people that I trust, getting up to speed on the latest in the race in November 2024. You can subscribe to Perino on Politics right here on your favorite podcast platform and get a new episode every week. Here's what it sounds like. Hope you enjoy. The first Republican presidential primary debate hosted by Fox News provided eligible Republican candidates with the opportunity on this national stage to showcase to voters why they deserved the nomination. As the stakes continue to rise and candidates take note on how to best elevate their campaigns, I'm joined by a strategic communications and political consultant and a good friend of mine who can offer insight into candidate campaign strategies. Jesse Hunt is the founder and president of Nonknock Strategies. I hope I'm saying that correctly. He's going to tell me all about why this name matters. Jesse has served as a communications director for both the Republican Governors Association and the National Republican Senatorial Committee. He has also extensive knowledge of New Hampshire politics, and that is key to this conversation today. He was the New Hampshire communications director for Jeb 2016 and the deputy communications director for Ambassador Scott Brown's 2014 New Hampshire Senate campaign. Jesse, welcome to the third edition of Perino on Politics. It's great to have you. Thank you so much for having me. I'm, I'm, I'm glad I can join you. Tell me about Knock strategies. Why does this matter? Uh, well, for all of those who are interested in uh, New Hampshire politics and obviously following along the presidential campaign trail, uh, the Monadnock regions in southwestern New Hampshire, uh, it's named after basically the, you know, there's a famous mountain there that is <laughs> that is named after one of the most climbed mountains in the world, Mount Monadnock. And I grew up uh, on the Massachusetts side, just over the border. Uh, but that is the region that I'm familiar with. And I wanted to pay a little homage to my uh, to the area that helped bring me up as a as a as a young adult. I love that. <laughs> I love the connection to home. And I this past weekend, I after the debate in Milwaukee, I worked on newsroom here in New York City on Friday, and then I went to Colorado and spoke to the Steamboat Institute. Wonderful organization, making a big impact. And I love going home and just having a little bit of that fresh mountain air after the 109 degree clam bake that was milwaukee for the day that we were there for the debate it felt really good oh yeah god god bless you guys for being able to hang out in that heat all day i was out there a bit and my god uh thank god thankfully i had a a change of clothes back at the hotel before we went to the actual debate but man it was pretty hot <laughs> oh i had to i sweated through the dress so i had to go change indeed okay well enough i'm sure people are like gross why are you telling me that okay hey i want to talk to you today about sort of the rest of the ticket beyond the presidential. But let's get a sense of, since you were there, and I know that you pay attention to these things, um, maybe your your big takeaway from the debate? Yeah, well, that was a, uh, you know, one of the first opportunities that all candidates had to you know, get in front of a large audience, right? Um, many of them have been on, you know, your, on TV screens, on phones for 
for some time making news on different subjects, but they, you know, that sort of that large of an audience has not necessarily seen all those candidates stacked up against one another. And so that was a great opportunity for that. Uh, the best part of the presidential process is there's going to be several more. Um, and so candidates will continue to get to have a conversation with, with voters about the direction they want to take the country in. And that was, you know, the first kind of, uh, you know, curtain opening of this presidential race. It really was. And so now the candidates are out and about. One thing that's interesting is a, just where do they decide to go next? And Iowa is certainly the first, right? But tell me a little bit about New Hampshire, New Hampshire politics, and how you know this campaign of 2024 is stacking up for the second state to vote. New Hampshire is one of those states that still um, appreciates that in-person interaction with different candidates. Um, you know, there's there's lots of cliches that people use about, you know, I've only heard from a candidate four times, so I'm not ready to make a decision yet. Mm-hmm. Um, that that still holds true. And I think that's something that the first in the nation primary truly values. Um, and it's a great proving ground. Um, if you're able to uh, connect with people on a human level uh, in the state like New Hampshire, going to town halls, going to VFWs, Legion halls, um, you know, sitting down with parents at, you know, different uh, school-related events, uh, you 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 understand what exactly they're concerned about, um, and you are able to you know chart what your plan for how you're going to improve the country. And you know it's not one of those states that's so large where you can't you know visit every little pocket. Um, and look, they voters in New Hampshire take this responsibility very Does seriously. Does that include like even younger generations now? Yes, because I, I do. They grew. They've grown up. Okay. Uh, seeing this process take place. Um, you know, I, I can't tell you how many times, both on my campaigns for for Scott Brown or for Jeb, how many times you'd see young young children in the audience with their parents. It's, it's a, actually a pretty touching moment uh, to see, you know, parents who care about the civic process bring their kids along. And the kids oftentimes end up asking lots of questions. And they're really good. They're really informed questions. So that's just something that's part of their DNA. And I think you'll continue to see that. One of the people who was... Uh- in the race, but not on the stage last night, was former President Trump. Uh, the day after the debate, he presented himself in prime time in Fulton County, and he had the now infamous mugshot. The campaign says that they raised four, over $4 million on Friday just following the release of that mugshot. Aside from the mugshot, because all the legal entanglements that there, those are getting sorted out today. Uh, at least a couple of them in terms of when these things are actually going to happen. But overall, do you think it mattered to have him on or off the stage? Would it matter to him going forward in this race since he has such a commanding lead? I think everyone would have liked to have been able to stack up against, you know, every candidate in the race, um, particularly because, you know, I think there's, you know, there's a bit of concern that, you know, Joe Biden might try to use this as a way to weasel out of a general election debate. Um, we know that he doesn't necessarily, you know, uh, have the the stamina to to run what is a, a rigorous presidential campaign. So just hope that's not used as a precedent going forward. Um, that said, you as a candidate you can just control what you can control, and you can't control whether or not another candidate shows up. Um, all you can do is prepare for the moment, uh, outline your plan, explain to voters why you're the best suited to to lead the party uh, into the 2024 cycle. It's going to be really consequential. Look, the country's going in the wrong direction. I think there's something that you know we'll probably get into a little bit here, but a lot of voters are dissatisfied with the direction of the economy. There was just an Associated Press poll that came out that showed 
Biden receiving 36% approval from adults. Um, that's that's pretty bad. And that's why you see a greater emphasis being put on their quote unquote Bidenomics and having and pushing that across the states. You've you've been a comms director for lots of different entities, and the Biden White House complains quite mightily that people in America are not giving them full credit for what they consider is a good economy. But as a communication strategy, I just feel like that is so backwards. You can't tell people how they should feel. Exactly. And that's the and that's the biggest challenge that they can't seem to understand is, you know, they're just kind of trying to, you know, throw numbers at people mm-hmm. in a sense that or, or or come up with like catchy names like the Inflation Reduction Act, which everyone has found is like there was just an Associated Press story the other day that showed that like, yeah, um, inflation might be lessening a bit, but the Inflation Reduction Act has nothing, has nothing to do with it. So that, yeah, them telling and it still feels like they and they're spending more of the household budget on it. And they get nickel and dimed a lot. And does everything feels a little bit in disarray. So you get the wrong track number on top of that. But there was another poll that just came out today on Monday. And this was a poll that showed that there's a tremendous amount of bipartisan agreement on something. Is that to be celebrated? I don't know. Let me tell you what it was. 77% of those polled in America said they think Joe Biden is too old to run. And Jesse, I don't know how the White House or the Biden campaign spins their way out of that one. Yeah, it's 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 almost impossible. And I'd say they're not doing themselves any any favors by having him basically on vacation the entire month of August. Um, they're just kind of feeding into that narrative that he's not up to the task and he's too old to do this. Um, you know, you have major crises going on right now. Right. It took him a little time to get out there to Maui, but he had a nice little pit stop to do Pilates somewhere and, you know, was hanging out at Tom Steyer's place and. And, and Lake Tahoe, um, you know, they're, they're kind of feeding into that narrative a bit. And I'm not necessarily sure that's good communication strategy. But at the end of the day, I guess the boss needs it. Well, let me ask you this. So Bernie Sanders, who's an independent uh, but ran in the Democratic nomination contest in 2020, lost to Joe Biden. He was in New Hampshire. They the basically the Biden campaign dispatched Bernie Sanders to New Hampshire to try to shore up Biden's position there. And Bernie Sanders is 81 and he is it, I guess when he, he just reads like a younger person than Biden does. But Bernie Sanders was trying to make the case that Biden, nope, he's great, he's perfect, he's really in great shape. And I think, guys, everyone has their own eyes and ears. They can see what's going on. I don't think Bernie Sanders can, is going to convince anyone, but let me give you the last word on that, Jesse. Yeah, having someone like Bernie Sanders, who I guess, you know, fits with the younger generation because he's kind of counterculture, right? Um, you know, he embraces socialism, clearly. Um, some of his policy ideas are, are, are well-received among that um, demographic. Um, but I'm not necessarily sure someone like Bernie Sanders, who's kind of a curmudgeon, is the best validator when it comes to, you know, Joe Biden having... Um, you know, kind of a, a, a rosy disposition or a, a very bright, forward-looking perspective on the, the future of the country. Well, I have one quick question, quick answer before we go to a quick break and end this segment. And we have a lot more coming up on the other side about the gubernatorial House and Senate races coming up. But my question to you is, right now today, Jesse Hunt, do you believe Joe Biden will be the Democratic nominee for president in 2024? I do. I do, too. Okay, that solves that, at least for us for today. (laughs) And that wraps up this segment. But before we head to the break, I've got a candidate quotable. Which presidential candidate is responsible for the following statement? Quote, we act like letting Russia win in Ukraine is like a gimme as opposed to a gift to China. 
Russia has become China's gas station. Stay with us. We'll have that answer coming up. From the Fox News Podcasts Network. I'm Janice Dean, Fox News Senior Meteorologist. Be sure to subscribe to the Janice Dean Podcast at foxnewspodcast.com or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And don't forget to spread the sunshine. Welcome back to Perino on Politics. So, Jesse, I want to know what's on your mind beyond the presidential candidates, because this is a really big deal, as we have seen in terms of House majorities. You can see that, especially in the Biden investigations that the House has been able to put forward, even just having hearings on basic government oversight with the Republicans in office and the and the presidency being held by Democrats. I want to talk about the those House races, the Senate I want to talk about that and hear your case because Republicans should have a good opportunity this year, but the Democrats have a new goal and they keep saying the number 55. I want to talk to you about that. And then governors. I love governors. I always think that they're great candidates, uh, mostly because they've really been through the ringer. They have had to be the executives of of a state, like a sort of a mini country. And so the governor's races and how you see that. But let's start, if you would, with the House side. How do you th- see things going? Kevin McCarthy, one day he told me he, he's looking a little thinner. And he told me that some people ask him if he's on Ozempic. And he says, no, I'm on the five seat majority diet. <laughs> well, he's certainly someone that's notorious for his hustle. Uh, he's incredibly hardworking when it comes to the, the political side of things, and obviously, you know, he has a, a you know a thin majority up there on the hill, and you know, it's certainly going to kind of test his his resolve and stamina uh, to get through this process. But I mean, no one works harder on the on the political side of things, and I think he's you know part of what he's been able to contribute has allowed Republicans to put themselves in pretty good position um, to withstand. What, you know, what will be a tremendous amount of pressure for on from Democrats to to flip the House? You know, you have I think talking to some folks on the House Republican side, they're very uh, impressed by you know some of their Biden district Republicans. Um, you know, talk you know even thinking through some members like. What, can Kim, you explain that to Bend- people? What a Biden district Republican means? Yes, that, that was that's a district that Joe Biden won in 2020, um, but is currently held by a Republican member of the House. Mm-hmm. Those are oftentimes the the toughest districts to hold uh, on the House side is when they they split because you just don't have that much split ticket voting anymore. But, you know, those are you know generally the most impressive candidates as well, because they have a very unique appeal to independent voters, voters who are willing to sometimes vote for a Democrat or a Republican. Mm hmm. And there is some movement to try to redistrict here up in New York, because one of the reasons Kevin McCarthy has that five seat majority is because he was able to win several seats here in the state of New York, partly because of a focus on crime and the economy. Those issues have not gotten better in New York. And in fact, arguably, you have a lot of people now saying 82 percent of New Yorkers saying the migrant crisis is out of control. And I think they look to Republicans as the possible way to help solve that. Uh, but the Democrats have gone back to the courts and said, don't you think that the redistricting needs to be redone here? So they don't want to fight on the campaign trail and win. They want to try to win in the courts. Yeah, that's standard for for Democrats who've, you know, made it, uh, you know, I'm sh- someone like Mark Elias, who's a very prominent uh, Democrat election attorney, has you know made a whole career now out of just trying to manipulate the, the, the legal process um, for political gain. Um, it's part of their their standard operating procedure. That's something that we on the Republican side have to contend with, prepare for. 
Um, I think it's interesting to see how how uh, nervous Democrats in in New York uh, have become, particularly after Kathy Hochul um, blaming the Biden administration for the, the the surge of migrants at the southern border, because you know now they're having to deal with the consequences of it. So, oh, look what happens when you uh, <laughs> when you're forced to deal with the reality that a lot of Republican governors are having to deal with that that you know are in charge of states that yeah. border. Uh, border Mexico. It, it's, it reminds me of the phrase, please forgive me, young listeners, it rolls downhill. Um, but it's like blame goes uphill. <laughs> so exactly. Biden's about to, about to get that. Tell me uh, about the Senate. What do you think that looks like right now? They're, the Democrats have a slim majority. It's going to be so it's going to be a challenge uh, for I'd say for Democrats, really. They don't have many offensive opportunities. They're primarily on defense this cycle. And Republicans have done a good job recruiting quality candidates in several different states. I know that they they feel bullish about their chances in Montana and West Virginia and Ohio. You have three Democrat incumbents there who have been able to, to buck recent trends in red states. So that's states that care that were carried by Donald Trump. Uh, but they were ultimately successful in 2018. That's John Tester, Sherrod Brown, and Joe Manchin. Uh, they were all able to win re-election while Donald Trump was in the White House, despite Donald Trump having carried those states heavily in 2016. That said, I know Republicans feel very confident that they have better candidates in the race this time in those three states. And that is where they believe that they can pick up uh, those requisite seats that they need um, to ultimately put them back in the in the majority. One of the things that Democrats want to do is put abortion referendums on the ballot in some of those key states. So Ohio, Arizona, and even Nevada. What's the impact of that? Clearly, this is an issue that that motivates the Democrat base. Uh, even if they don't aren't that satisfied with a presidential candidate like Joe Biden or a Senate candidate um, in those specific states, uh, they will show up to vote uh, on that issue. We've seen it in in Wisconsin uh, um, state judicial races. We saw it in a referendum uh, in Kansas last cycle. Uh, just saw a recent uh, referendum in Ohio. Uh, so clearly, it's a, it's an issue that it, the the Democrat base is very motivated by, um, and that's something that Republicans certainly have to contend with. They need to make sure that they articulate their policies, what they believe, to avoid Democrats. Pay- boxing them into a position yeah. that's untenable with the with the with the general electorate. It's a really interesting debate on the right as well. And maybe we'll do a deeper dive on the subject on Perino on politics in a future episode. Tell me about the governor's races. You're going to have a nice test case here coming up in a couple months now. You have the 2023 races. That's the beauty of uh, GovWorld and GovRaces is you, you get something every year because um, you have these off-year elections, you know, the 2023. Which are the ones this year? So you have Mississippi, mm. Louisiana, and Kentucky. Mm. Um, Mississippi held by Tate Reeves. Uh, he's running for re-election. Then you he have should be Louisiana. fine, right? Yeah, he'll be he'll be fine. It'll yeah. be a little bit, you know, look, there'll, there'll be polls that show that race tightening a little bit and everyone will freak out. But um, <laughs> Tate Reeves is a very good governor. Uh, they have a good, strong team and, you know, they're going to have a lot of resources available to them to make sure that he's able to maintain his his standing in that race and ultimately come out successful. Um, Louisiana is a good pickup opportunity for Republicans. You have Governor John Bell Edwards, who's term limited. Um, Louisiana elections are kind of quirky. It's an all party election, uh, meaning everyone runs at once um, in November. And then the, the top two vote getters uh, move on to a runoff, um, regardless of party. So that'll be interesting dynamic, but I, I would expect Republicans to pick up that seat. Um, but then Kentucky, 
is currently held by Andy Bashir, and you have Republican uh, Kentucky Attorney General uh, Daniel Cameron as the GOP nominee there. And that's going to be a very competitive race. Andy Bashir, you know, the political scion in Kentucky, uh, he is the incumbent, and it's very difficult to beat incumbent governors. Um, yes. You might be asking yourself why uh, somebody who's who's beaten an incumbent governor and also helped incumbent governors get reelected. Uh, you're able to shape the narrative around the race because you really do control um, the, the conversation and, and you're able to have out, outsized influence and earn media. Um, you still have a lot of voters who pay attention to their broadcast news at night and the governor has an incredible ability um, to steer the conversation in those in, in that kind of arena. And that's a massive advantage of that the incumbent generally has over the, the challenger. All right, Jesse, that's a good way to wrap up segment two. But before we go, here is the answer to your candidate quotable. We act like that letting Russia win in Ukraine uh, is like a gimme as opposed to a gift to China. Russia has become China's gas station. That is North Dakota Governor Doug Burgum. Don't go away more. Perino on politics up next. All right, we're back with Perino on politics. Now, before we wrap everything up, I have to just check, you know, in the commercial break if there's breaking news. There was breaking news, Jesse. Uh, the trial for President Trump's the documents case. That's the federal case. The judge has said that that trial will commence on March 4th, 2024. Is is that right around Super Tuesday? <laughs> Am I wrong? Yeah. Oh, I know it is. <laughs> it is. I think. I don't know how well, that's going to go over. Yeah, because uh, I think South Carolina is um, toward the end of right. February, obviously. So then it'll be right after. That is. So that news is just breaking. I don't know what the Trump team has said yet, but uh, it certainly added an element to this campaign. But what I wanted to ask you is what I'd like to ask my friends when I call you up. And this podcast is an opportunity for people to hear it directly from you as well. So, you know, I hate to miss something or to feel like I, well, anyway, I wake up every day feeling like I know less than the day before. And I'm always feeling like a need to read more, talk to more people, listen to more podcasts, get more information. Is there anything you think that I'm missing? What are you looking at when you look at these campaigns on either on the presidential level or overall the mood of the country? What do you pay attention to right now? So one thing that just kind of personal to me, because it's something that I'm responsible for, but I think it, I find it incredibly interesting is that um, how people consume news. Um, mm-hmm. And we're kind of seeing it play out on the presidential stage where um, this national polling doesn't necessarily always track with state polling. And the answer to that is, well, why? Well, national polling oftentimes is is pulled by a candidate's earned media presence and national media presence. And, you know, seeing how fragmented the environment is and how it's just, a, it's a very good encapsulation of like state being a little bit more traditional where paid media has a little bit more influence. And then at the national level, you see far more people influenced by kind of your, 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 your different elements of media, right? Podcasts like we're on YouTube uh, channels, uh, social media. So I think, I say that because there are now so many more places where people get news and people are paying attention at a much faster rate. They're not necessarily making decisions yet on which candidates they're going to support. Oh, my gosh. Uh, we have voters like politics used to be kind of on the periphery. Now, like go to a bar and you mention politics and you'll have everyone talking about it within two, three minutes. Jesse, I'm obsessed with this are. topic, too. And 
it's so interesting because everything is so dispersed. Um, when we had the debate last week, it was so interesting to see out of the 13 million people that watched just the, the various different views on who they thought won, who they thought needed some more help, who they think should go and not be on the debate stage in the next debate. And there, it was wonderful in a way, in many ways, right, to think about, well, how diverse the thought is amongst Americans who are paying attention. But it also is something very interesting, like young people getting their news in a different way from the older generation. So some of these polls, maybe they're not maybe they're not quite on target. And polling has changed a lot, though. Some of the polls that we get are we try to bring everybody the best possible snapshots in time that we can. Is there anyone on the presidential primary stage right now that you think is doing a good job of taking advantage of all the different ways to talk to voters? And let me just preface that by saying I think that Donald Trump was able to do what Reagan did to television or even John F. Kennedy did with television or FDR did with radio that Obama to some extent, but certainly President Trump utilizing social media to their advantage. And now it's just even bigger and more important. Yeah, absolutely. He he definitely kind of, I think, set us on this path to using more alternative forms of media. And I think uh, I think a lot of you're seeing a lot of different candidates find um, different avenues to get their message out there. Um, I, I think you've seen Vivek uh, Vivek actually try to replicate the Pete Buttigieg model, which I think Pete Buttigieg took what Trump did and made it his own thing. And I think Vivek has tried to um, replicate that a bit, which mm-hmm. is the all of the above approach. Just go everywhere generate as much content as humanly possible. And I think that's I mean, evidenced by some of the numbers you've seen. It seems to be working in terms of some of the national polling, but he's still trailing a bit in some of those early states. And I think that's largely in part to the kind of the, the, the still the the fact that paid media does matter in some of those states. Um, but yeah, clearly uh, uh, there, I think Pete Buttigieg is a model that everyone else is trying to emulate at this point. People, People who want to kind of go for that, you know, massive amounts of of alternative media content. Awesome. Jesse Hunt, I love talking with you. I missed you, but it's good to catch up with you on Perino on politics. I appreciate it. Before we go, it's time for a pop quiz. And you get to choose from I have three categories. You choose one. Okay. First one is okay. presidential pets. Next one is candidate LinkedIn. The third one is campaign slogans. Oh, I'm gonna go. Uh, this this might be this might be a boring one, but I'm gonna go uh, candidate LinkedIn. No, I like this one. I, no one has chosen this one yet, so kudos to you. Here we go. This candidate learned the importance of hard work at a young age, stepping up as a bookkeeper for her mother's store at the age of twelve. One, Nikki Haley. Two, Marianne Williamson. Three, Barbie. Uh, I'm gonna go Nikki Haley. It was Nikki Haley. She and then she became an accountant after all of that. So she is the former governor of South Carolina. She was the U.N. ambassador to President Trump and now presidential candidate for the GOP primary. Jesse Hunt, thank you so much. I appreciate it. Dana, thank you. I appreciate getting to catch up. Listen ad-free with a Fox News Podcast Plus subscription on Apple Podcasts. And Amazon Prime members can listen to this show ad-free on the Amazon Music app.
from the Fox News Podcasts Network. I'm Ben Domenech, Fox News contributor and editor of the Transom.com daily newsletter. And I'm inviting you to join a conversation every week. It's the Ben Domenech Podcast. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. Listen to Fox News Podcast shows ad-free on Fox News Podcast Plus, on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music with your Prime membership, or follow wherever you get your podcasts.